Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 95. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and it's wonderful to have your company. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. Your support is very much appreciated. If you love the podcast and eagerly await every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. It's easy to do. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. December's prize is Lucy Churchill's astonishing reconstruction of Anne Boleyn's The Most Happy Portrait Medal. In addition to receiving the plaque, the lucky winner will also receive two portrait medal magnets. A huge thank you to Lucy for sponsoring this incredible prize. If you've been considering supporting the work I do, then this is the perfect time to join. I'd also like to take this opportunity to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a safe and prosperous New Year. I know that for many of us, it's not the holiday season we'd hoped for. Wherever in the world you are, I do hope you find a little beauty and magic in your days and may joy and love fill your home. My sincerest wish is that 2021 is kinder to all of us. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Christmas and New Year celebrations in Tudor England is Siobhan Clark. Siobhan has worked for Historic Royal Palaces for 20 years, delivering tours and lectures at the Palaces of Hampton Court, the Tower of London, Kensington and the Banqueting House. She's an author and historian who has featured on BBC Radio Women's Hour and television's Secret of Henry VIII's Palace. Her published work includes A Tudor Christmas, written in collaboration with Alison Weir, and The Tudors, The Crown, The Dynasty, The Golden Age with Linda Collins. Her next book, King and Collector, Henry VIII in the Yard of Kingship, will be published by the History Press in March 2021. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
welcome to Talking Tutors. How are you? Very well, thank you. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you too and lovely to have you on the show. I'm really excited to talk all things Tudor Christmas with you. But before we do that, I thought it would be really great if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background and maybe what sparked your interest for Tudor history. Yes, of course. Um, Well, first of all, I'm actually Scottish and that's where I was educated and where I did my degree. And they don't study the Tudors in Scotland um, for fairly obvious reasons. We study the Stuarts. My um, interest was sparked from a very old television programme done by the BBC, which was actually excellent, um, The Six Wives of Henry VIII with Keith Michel. So that's probably giving away how old I am, except (laughs) I was a child when I watched it. And I just completely entranced me. And and then from then on, I just loved the Tudors. So I was very, I considered myself very lucky to be working for Historic Royal Palaces. And I have done for the past 20 years mainly at Hampton Court Palace, the the best uh, Tudor venue in the whole country. So yeah, I just love it. And still my passion is is still there after all these years. And now now I write about the Tudors. So that's the best thing. That's fantastic. And I agree with you. I love Hampton Court Palace. So you're very lucky to work there. That's, that's amazing. Now, yeah. I, I thought that we could talk a little bit about some Tudor Christmas and New Year tradition. Before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit about how Advent was observed at the Tudor Court? Yes. So Advent, we still are aware or observe Advent today. It's an important part of the Christian calendar and was even more important, of course, in Tudor times. Advent means coming or arrival. It's all about the preparation for Christmas. It starts on the last Sunday in November, usually the 30th, around about the 30th of November. It's very much a season of atonement, or it certainly was to the Tudors, because they're preparing themselves spiritually for the coming of Christ. At that time, people were supposed to do penance. They would avoid meat, cheese and eggs. And even Christmas Eve itself was a day of fasting. So to us, fasting obviously means giving up almost everything. Uh, But for the Tudors, they they call it fasting, having to do without meat because they feel deprived uh, without the meat. So no meat, cheese or eggs. And that meant that people were anticipating the Christmas feast even more than, you know, than otherwise after the bland food of Advent. Advent's quite an interesting contrast with what we do today because nowadays people do a lot of partying in the weeks leading up to Christmas. And that just wasn't the case for the Tudors. It, it was a time, as I said, it was a time of abstinence in preparation yes. for the preparation. For the yes, like a preparation period. And of course, their partying started a little bit later, didn't it? It started on Christmas Day, whereas, as you say, we, we tend to have all our Christmas functions prior to the big day. Could you talk to us about the, the main celebrations yeah. of that period? Well, first of all, there are 12 days of Christmas and it has actually been enshrined in law since King Alfred in the 9th century that no free man could be compelled to work during the 12 days of Christmas. And that might sound a bit, um, you know, how can all these people have all this time off? But remember, this is an agricultural society. It's the middle of winter. There's not a lot that can be done in the fields. So people are having this long extended time off, these 12 days of Christmas. The reason there are 12 days is because it took the Magi 12 days to get to Bethlehem. So we have Christmas Eve is obviously very important. 
that's when the religious observance starts, uh, the bells ring out for midnight mass. And, and remember that this whole period of celebration is very much a religious festival, much more so than even today. Then Christmas Day, again, solemn worship, you know, the King, uh, Henry VIII will attend mass. But then that will be followed by a great feast, which everyone's been looking forward to and dancing. Then with the next important day is New Year's Day, when presents are exchanged. Kings and queens wear their crowns. They again, they process to chapel. Again, they preside over yet another great feast. The whole thing culminates in Twelfth Night. This is the night before the 6th of January, which is Epiphany, when the Magi reached Bethlehem. So Twelfth Night, the night before, everything reaches its climax with the Lord of Misrule presiding over all the pageantry and merrymaking of that night. And there would be a Twelfth Night cake, there would be a wassail bowl, very, very colourful, very extravagant and also kind of society kind of turned on its head. There's a lot of role reversal, gender reversal, a time when rank took second place to revelry. There would be diver what they call diverse interludes, rich masks and disports, after which a great banquet would be served. And, and many, many dishes. We've got so many examples. In 1532, 200 dishes were served at Greenwich Palace. An Italian observer once noted that people sat down to table for seven hours. So there's an awful lot of eating going on at this time. Twelfth Night also became associated with plays, which is quite interesting. Um, and during the Elizabethan period, uh, taking sword at the, at the playhouses, and um, Shakespeare's men would come and perform, often come and perform before the Queen. And you'll probably be familiar with the play Twelfth Night, which was written for Whitehall Palace uh, in 1600. And it was written specifically for the Twelfth Night celebrations. So those are essentially the days, the important days of Christmas. Fantastic. And I, you mentioned a Lord of Misrule, or sometimes they were, they were also called Master of Mary Disports. So this person was appointed at Christmas Tide to, to oversee the pageantry, as you said, and the games yeah. and all the kind of fun revelry. So what exactly did this seasonal role involve and what kinds of activities did they organise? The um, Lord of Misrule is essentially Master of Ceremonies. So he's taking charge of the Christmas revelry and he's leading it. And he would have in his train heralds, magicians and fools in fancy dress. And it's just um, him sort of overseeing the 12 days of pageantry and merrymaking. But this was so common to have a Lord of Misrule. It, do, it doesn't ha just happen at court. The Lord Mayor of London will have a Lord of Misrule, local sheriffs, cities, towns and parishes. They'll all have, they'll all appoint someone to be the Lord of Misrule. And then the activities will include games like shuttlecock and skittles, lots of music and dancing. There will be paid entertainers like acrobats, tumblers and fire eaters, and lots of general sort of jokes and antics. And of course, jesters play a big part in this as well. Excellent. And obviously, winter time, very cold, so probably not too many outdoor activities. What other pastimes were popular at court at this time of the year? Well, the better off played board games, so chess, backgammon. There would be guessing games and word games and dice and cards. There was a lot of gambling going on and huge sums could be lost. Uh, we know that Henry once lost £100 playing cards and £450 at dominoes. But this is an enormous sum. So today that would be about £200,000. 
there would be card games. One is called Mum Chance, which had to be played in silence. And there was another game called Laugh and Lie Down, in which players had to keep still. Um, and then they were, they, were, they were meant to lay down and laugh when others were out. Hide and Seek was popular. Um, Hoodman Blind or Blind Man's Buff. By Tudor times, they were wearing blindfolds. Originally in the Middle Ages, uh, people would, would, had hoods and they would just turn them back to front. But the most, probably the most interesting and certainly the most hazardous game was Snapdragon. And this is Tudor. It was often played on Christmas Eve. Dried or candied fruits were placed in a bowl of warm brandy and then it was set alight. And um, players had to reach in and try and take the food without burning. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So this may be the origin of pouring brandy on the Christmas pudding, which is quite interesting. Uh, But we certainly don't recommend anyone trying this game today. (laughs) I had no idea that hide and seek was played there. Was it basically the same game that, you know, kids play today? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, there's a really interesting little um, anecdote of Edward VI uh, playing it when he was a little boy. Well, he had actually, obviously, you know, he was king from the age of nine. And it's one of his friends um, who recalls playing um, hide and seek with Edward at Hampton Court Palace and saying that Edward won the game by by finding this, this little friend. I think it was one of the Nivet uh, boys. Anyway, and then he, to reward his little friend, Edward... Um, took out his sword and knighted him um, <laughs> on the spot because the friend had won the game. So, the, yeah, they certainly, they certainly played hide-and-seek. There must have been lots of places to hide in those Tudor palaces. That would have been very difficult. <laughs> now, the Tudor palaces were obviously decorated beautifully as well at this time of year. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what decorations were used at the time? Yes. So everyone decorated their houses on Christmas Eve and not before. And at all levels of society, people would just go out and uh, pick evergreens, mainly holly and ivy, but also rosemary and bay and bring all these wonderful natural evergreens into their houses. Also, they came into the churches. You weren't supposed to keep your decorations in for too long because it was believed that they had mystical properties. There were tree spirits that dwelt in the evergreens and they would make mischief if they were kept inside for too long so and we still kind of follow that tradition today by taking our decorations down by 12th night the royal palaces were adorned with all of this greenery but also spices uh, had been brought back from the orient by medieval crusaders so cinnamon ginger cloves and nutmeg all of these spices were familiar to the Tudors, but they were very expensive. You would get the smell of these spices at Christmas. So sometimes cinnamon in particular, cloves, nutmeg might be used as part of the, um, the Christmas decorations at court. So you get that, all that lovely smell. But also the spices became associated with Christmas because they were expensive. And this was a time of year when people could perhaps get a chance to try more expensive foods. And, and so still today, we associate spices with Christmas. Oranges too were used, imported in their tens of thousands into England by Tudor times and traditionally given as gifts. But there were no Christmas trees. The chief decoration was the kissing bow, made of greenery, sometimes stuck with apples and always a sprig of mistletoe suspended from the ceiling. A mistletoe had been used since pagan times and uh, very much still in evidence with the Tudors, but never used in Christian churches 
just used in homes. Yeah, it must have looked amazing with all the candlelight as well. I'm just picturing it, how, how lovely it would have looked. Yeah, oh, beautiful, beautiful. It's love, lovely, all the natural decorations. An important part, of course, of any modern day Christmas celebration is the food. And some people spend weeks planning, you know, the menu for Christmas Day. So what did the Tudors yeah. eat and drink on Christmas Day? Well, most people started off with plum porridge as an appetizer. So this is a broth. It contains meat, mutton or beef, boiled with plums, spices, which I mentioned, dried fruits, breadcrumbs. Centuries later, the Victorians will remove the meat, although they did still use beef suet, and they will turn it into the the Christmas pudding that we know today. And then all classes enjoyed a seasonal favourite called brawn, and that's fatty cuts of boar or pork, often cooked in wine. But the most important part of Christmas dinner is the boar's head, carried in resplendent on its platter to the blast of trumpets and the sound of drums and pipes. But I must stress that this is not uh, ubiquitous. The, the, the boar's head is very much a status symbol. The Tudors had almost hunted it to extinction. So not everyone can have a boar's head, but that, but definitely at court. Uh, so this is the main dish that everyone's looking forward to seeing. But then there would be lots of other meats as well, a variety of poultry, including larks, partridges, and then you have quails, swan, chicken, goose, and and, the exotic meats that we're familiar with, like Peacock Royale. Turkeys had arrived. They were first sold in England in 1526, but it's, it's going to be centuries before it will oust the traditional meats. Brussels sprouts are first recorded in 1587, which is quite interesting. And stuffing, they could make stuffing for their, for their poultry with egg, currants, pork and herbs. And then they would enjoy mince pies or Christmas pies, which were made preferably with mutton in commemoration of the shepherds. So once again, we have the meat, but we also have sugar, dried fruits and spices. And but these pies didn't look like mince pies today. They were gilded. They would have a baby Jesus made of pastry adorning the, uh, the pie. And such pies were called nativity pies. Now, interestingly, it's these little nativity pies which the Puritans banned in the 1650s, not, not the round mince pies that we know today. Yeah, they just didn't like the um, the idea of the, the baby Jesus, you know, being recreated in, in a pie. Okay, well, yeah, I can understand why they were eating for seven hours. <laughs> That's a lot of food. <laughs> That's a lot of food. I'm glad they had the dancing to work off some of those calories at the same time. Yeah, Goodness. huge, huge of food. Yeah. Yeah, well, amazing. it was incumbent on the wealthy to open up their houses and to give, you know, so that the idea of charitable giving isn't doesn't actually come from the Victorians. It goes way back. So um, the better off were expected to to feed you know, the best servants and poorer people at this time of year. And Henry, of course, is, it wants to be seen to be incredibly generous. So they will be eating very well at court at Christmas time. 
Now, many of us today, we if we're exchanging gifts, we probably do that on Christmas Day, some people on, on Christmas Eve. However, the Tudors had a different tradition. They exchanged their gifts on New Year's Day. Now, this was really serious stuff at the Tudor court and had great political significance. So the way in which, you know, Henry or whoever the monarch was responded to you, your gift was a sign of whether you were in favour or whether you weren't. Yeah. Could you talk to us about the protocol that governed this important tradition and maybe just tell us a couple of examples of gifts that were exchanged at court yes of course so um so people didn't give uh, gifts at christmas they gave them at new year and this actually comes from the roman festival of saturnalia when the romans had given gifts we don't have any records of it happening in poorer homes i think for obvious reasons people didn't have money to to spend but it was embraced wholeheartedly at court uh, the Tudors loved to receive gifts. Originally with the early Tudors, um, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, we have records of them receiving gifts in their bedchambers. But Henry VIII definitely had his gifts displayed in the presence chamber. And um, people would come up uh, to the king with great ceremony and present the, the gifts. And we have a lovely um, primary source for New Year's Day 1538, a master John Hussey comes to court to deliver gifts. And he gives us a little glimpse of a, a, a really happy Henry VIII, a softer uh, Henry than, than the one we know in the Whitehall mural, uh, because he finds Henry leaning against a cupboard as courtiers come forward with their offerings. And, and beside Henry is standing Thomas Cromwell. And at the other end of the cupboard, Henry's secretary, uh, who's recording the gifts on a scroll. And when he sees Hussey, the king seems genuinely pleased and he you know, smiles warmly as the gift is, is presented and takes time to express his thanks. And, and Hussey sees all the, the whole range of gifts like velvet purses full of coins, costly carpets, embroidered shirts, a gold trencher, cheeses from Suffolk and even a marmoset. Mm. Um, and what, what's interesting is if everyone's expected to give the king a gift, which sounds a bit daunting, but you just give what you can afford. So then in Elizabeth's reign, you see that her ladies are giving her embroidered petticoats and sleeves. But then the sergeant of the pastry um, presents a fair pair of quinces and there are crystallised fruits from the clerk of the spicery. Uh, but as, as you mentioned, gift giving can have huge political significance. In 1532, Henry's trying to have his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled and the gifts that she sent, sends to him are rejected. And it's a very public rejection of his first wife, commanding her not to send him any in future but he was not her lawful husband, as she should have known. And then he goes on to accept gifts from his sweetheart, Anne Boleyn. In Elizabeth's reign, we see the Duke of Norfolk in 1571. He's imprisoned in the Tower of London and he sends Elizabeth a very lavish jewel, but she rejects it. However, in 1580, she's fallen out with Sir Philip Sidney and he sends her a jeweled whip for New Year's Day as a token of his submission. Elizabeth accepts it and it's a sign that she has forgiven him. So that in that way, the monarchs can show their displeasure with the subject or they can show um, forgiveness or approval. The monarchs also give gifts, usually plate, cups and bowls, and each is weighted according to the rank of the recipient. And you won't be surprised when I tell you that Henry uh, spent huge sums. Uh, one year he spent £800, which is over 400000 today on New Year's presents. 
That's amazing. I, I love those stories of Elizabeth and accepting and rejecting. You must have just held your breath when you went to present something and just hoped for the best. <laughs> now, like today, you know, carols were an important part of, of a Tudor Christmas and singing and performing. Do yep. you have a favourite 16th century carol? Yes, I would suggest going back to Winken de Word's Christmas Carols, uh, published in 1521. It's the earliest recorded printed collection in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And um, there are two, actually, that I love. Uh, the Boar's Head Carol is, uh, is printed there, and also the Coventry Carol. Very beautiful, very, very evocative. Um, and I think it's wonderful that, you know, that we can hear carols that were sung as early as 1521. Music was an integral part part of Christmas celebrations and actually at all levels of society not just at court in local towns they had people called the town waits who would uh, go around the streets at night singing for the pleasure of householders and hoping to get a little food in exchange just as carol singers perform today yes and that commentary carol is absolutely beautiful know, and if, if people great. haven't if people listening yeah. haven't had a listen please go and you know you can just go onto youtube and there are different versions yeah. there it is so atmospheric isn't it because that's very spiritual um with the boar's head carol is just very uplifting yes you know, it's quite a lot of fun it, yeah it's fun yeah now, when we come to the end of our episodes, I like to play what I call a little game of 10 to go. And they're just, this is just questions to get to know our guests a little bit better. So are you ready for our 10 questions? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's easy. Don't worry. So number one, what's a favorite Christmas or holiday tradition for you? Oh, it's got to be Midnight Mass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I'm very lucky. I have a, a medieval church near me and it's just so beautiful. And whenever we can, we would attend uh, Midnight Mass there. There's just something so special about that, so evocative. And people who go there, you know, it's, it's all very welcoming, very friendly. It, it really is truly uh, Christmas, Christmas spirit. It's lovely. So when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I knew that from very early on, I knew that I wanted to do something with history, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know exactly what. I thought maybe working in a museum and I wasn't sure I'd be lucky enough to ever get the opportunity, but um, I never, I, I didn't dream that I would one day work at Hampton Court Palace. And also I, I didn't dream that I would one day get to wear the, uh, the wonderful clothing, the, the Tudor clothing. So that was really was a dream came true when, that happened for me. Now, what's a favourite holiday destination for you? Oh, I, I actually quite like um, the Baltic. We, um, we did a Baltic cruise a few years ago um, and went to Russia, which I found amazing, you know, really interesting. Because I studied the, um, the Romanovs at, at university. I did quite a lot of Russian history. So it was, in, it was an incredible experience to go to the Ekaterinburg Palace and, uh, the, you know, places that I had read about and studied and to actually see uh, St. Petersburg. Was, that was incredible. And I, I like um, Denmark, Norway and Sweden as well. Norway in particular is very, very beautiful. So I think, yeah, I think the Baltic would be my my choice and what was your first paid job so I first after university I first worked in the civil service which was actually quite interesting because it was the office of information so it was 
the department who looked after government advertising, publications, government films, that that kind of thing. So it was, um, I was lucky, really. It was quite an interesting uh, job to start off with. Now, I imagine that you've got lots of wonderful places to visit close to where you live, but what's one that's particularly inspirational or one that you really love? Near where I live, we have a, a building called Whitehall, and it is Tudor. And it goes back to the time when we had Nonsuch Palace. I, I actually live near the remains of Nonsuch Palace, one of the lost palaces of Henry VIII. And there's a little village called Cheam, which is quite charming. And there is this, uh, this house called Whitehall. Whitehall was actually, um, obviously we think of Whitehall Palace, the biggest palace in Europe, but Whitehall was quite a popular name for houses at the time. And, uh, and that's, that's quite a little... Gem. I always think actually that it's it's really interesting to go into the houses of uh, middling the middling sort, the, the the middle class Tudors, and to to see these kind of manor houses and you know it, it's an interesting contrast with the big palaces and places that we that are so well known. It's quite nice to see um, a more modest uh, dwelling if you get if you get the chance. So so yes, there there is a building near me which uh, which I enjoy visiting. Yes, I actually think I've been there myself. They've got some lovely, um, at the time, I think they had some lovely paintings, illustrations of Nonsuch Palace. I think they had that there. Yeah, there was an exhibition. I wanted to go and visit the spot where Nonsuch Palace was and and somebody suggested I should go to this particular house as well. So, yes, I have been in that little neck of the woods. Did you see the the model of Nonsuch Palace? Yes, I did see the model. That's quite extraordinary, actually, isn't it? It is. It's amazing. It's it's so sad that we've lost it, that we've lost the palace. Um, Oh, yes, I know. I know you stand there in the fields, just trying to imagine it there, you know, emerging from the ground. Mm. So what's your favourite comfort food? Oh, a glass. (laughs) Well, um, apart from a glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's food. That's good. (laughs) Um, What do I like? Oh, probably pasta. Yes. Yeah. And that goes well together, doesn't it? Nice glass of wine, nice pasta. That sounds really good. And what's an ideal Sunday morning for you? I like to read the Times. Yeah, that's good. That's my treat. I love to read the Times on a Sunday. Yeah. Now, do you have a a favourite period film or show that you've really enjoyed? Yes. I think, um, I don't think anything for me has been better than A Man for All Seasons. I also liked Anne of a Thousand Days. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And of course I loved I loved Wolf Hall. I loved what they did with Wolf Hall. So that would be my favourite uh, for a recent uh, show. And lucky last question, if you could travel back to one event, any event, any period of history, it doesn't have to be Tudor, what would you like to go back and see? I'd have to I'd have to say that I wanted to go back to the court of Henry VIII. I'd have to. And um, I'd like to see Anne Boleyn, I think. I'd, I think I'd like to go back to, to their court and, um, and see Henry and Anne and see some of the famous people that I've yes. read so much about. Um, uh, and, you know, perhaps um, the, uh, the early, in the early days when, uh, when Anne is queen, 
and and even perhaps the little Elizabeth would be wonderful to see the little red-haired Elizabeth. So would. yes, wouldn't that be amazing? I'd love to join you there, so we can go yeah. together and <laughs> and visit them. Now, the, the very 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 last thing that we do is I ask all my guests for a Tudor takeaway. So this is just something for our listeners to go and either watch or listen to after the episode. Yeah. Sometimes people recommend books or or movies yeah. or songs. Do you have a Tudor takeaway for? us yeah well I do actually on the subject of Tudor Christmas I've got a few suggestions there's a lovely CD a tapestry of carols by Maddie Pryor Um, I listen to that every Christmas and it's full of all those lovely old songs if you want to watch something on DVD Lucy Worsley did a very good show with the BBC and that's available it's called 12 Days of Tudor Christmas. And of course, there's the book that I wrote with Alison. So Alison wears a Tudor Christmas. Um, and those are the three things that I would that I would recommend. In, in terms of a visit, and I'm sure that people have said Hampton Court many times in the past, but they might not have said come to Hampton Court at Christmas. And it really is wonderful uh, because we do a lot of special Christmas events and celebrations. And not only that, but the palace is decorated for Christmas. So you can walk through the cloisters and see all the greenery and smell the cinnamon and nutmeg, the pine and juniper. And really it's so evocative and, and you know, and really get feel for how Tudor monarchs celebrated Christmas there 500 years ago. Oh, that just sounds amazing. It's definitely on my bucket list. So I hope one day I get to, I normally go at different times during the year, but I would love to go during Christmas and, and do, you know, maybe the midnight mass as well in a medieval church. That sounds just absolutely divine. I love that. Well, they're all fantastic suggestions. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk tutors with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank, thank you for asking me. And I, I feel quite Christmassy now, I have to say. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> thank you. And Merry Christmas to you as well. Oh, Merry Christmas. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music